Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what gift shop item would you get from the gift store at Babylon 5? Some good old-fashioned science tubes. Uh, let the record state that I am holding up an action figure of Jakar. This is on our Twitter account now, posted... But uh, Jude opened up tonight's call with uh, both Jakar action figures on the call. Only not not his face, just Jakar. And honestly, I just I think that is just for dedication to the bit. So the the yes, but also uh, don't eBay on sleep meds, kids, um, because <laughs> your co-host might tell you that there are Babylon Five miniatures, uh, and then you end up on eBay buying seventy dollars worth of. 20-year-old, 30-year-old miniatures you'll probably never paint. Uh, and then you also end up buying action figures uh, from a TV show that's 30 years old uh, off eBay. Good stuff, good stuff. Tonight, we are talking about two episodes from Season 2, Episodes 14 and 15, There All the Honor Lies, and and now for a word. Two episodes that we hate, but that we actually need to say stuff about, so we can't just skip them. Okay, one of these I don't hate, I just didn't like. I, I Like, hate is an active thing, and there's only one episode here that I, like, actively well, dislike. It, it's like, this... The, the Jude, sec- Jude has enough hate for a noun for a word <laughs> for both of us. I feel like my description of this episode, my personal title for this episode, is just like 37 poop emojis. I don't, I don't, I mean, I hate the format of, and now for a word, but I don't hate the content. I just can't stand the episode. Uh, whereas I absolutely hate the, this episode we're going to talk about now. Uh, they're all honor lies. I, I think it's just, there are so many things going on in this episode that are dumb and bad. And, uh, I'm so glad that the writer of this episode never writes another Babylon 5 episode. And I prefer to, I like to think that it was as punishment for writing this piece of garbage. Well, with that, we should probably just rip the Band-Aid off and talk about the episode. I was, you know, I guess, I I think I volunteered to write this summary. Um, Much to my surprise. (laughs) I have regrets in my life, but I tried to do it justice. Uh, So we have episode 14 of season two, There All the Honor Lives. Uh, written by Peter David and directed by Mike Vejar. Vejar, something like that. Pronunciation. It's a mystery. So, uh, buckle up, everyone, because there is a lot going on in this episode, and almost all of it is bad. First, we have the A-plot. Sheridan is out and about on the station, and someone runs into him in a corridor. He notices that this person stole his stupid hand cell phone and chases after them, only to be attacked by Mimbari. Sheridan is thrown to the ground where he encounters a suspiciously handy PPG. 
Sheridan warns Mimbari to back off. The Mimbari does not, instead saying, death first, and appearing to reach for a weapon. Sheridan then fires the PPG and kills him. The blast somehow, um, somehow, uh, yeah, knocks the attacker down some stairs where there's another Minbari uh, who has been waiting there, apparently who, w- with a purpose of life, to stare at Sheridan in shock and horror and then run off. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you here. Sheridan is a military officer, correct? Yes. Yes. Theoretically speaking, he is trained in how to use a PPG. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. PPGs have no recoil, correct? This is a demonstrated fact. Yes. Yes. Okay. That means you can shoot them basically like a laser pointer. Yes. Okay. I'm glad we've established that. Uh, yes. Two questions. They also should have no... That This should not knock this dude off of his fucking feet. Well, I can I, I, I can did. believe that. I can, <laughs> I can believe that. Like, I can come up with some Star Trek pseudoscience horse shit why like, it would have no like, recoil, but also blow a guy off his feet like he's standing in a wind tunnel. Like, I can... I can, That's bullshit. That's not how physics works, Jude. It could have. It could be an explosive round. It could be a little mini missile. I don't know. I can. I can <laughs> Star Trek word it. To I can make that work. What I can't make work is how a military officer who is trained in how to use a, a, a gun, a weapon, finds a random gun on the ground and is like, "Yeah, I'm gonna pick that up." Hey, you. <laughs> random person i'm not gonna you know shoot you in the knee like i don't know a reasonable person like john from person of interest who shoots everyone in the knee and that seems to work great for him uh or shoot a firing shot or just i don't know run away like no he blows the guy away center of mass shot like okay I'm done. I'm just saying. Yeah. No, no. This, the whole this setup for like, this episode is this whole this whole episode is, sucks. Sucks. This is it just sucks. the tip of the iceberg. We we are about thirty seconds into the episode at this point. Okay, I'm done. That's yeah. I won't interrupt anymore. <laughs> I'm just saying that from the outset, this episode relies on everyone acting stupid. Like yes, and okay. and this scene is basically it looks like something that came out of a Dirty Harry movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. between like how how Sheridan fires this PPG to like the ridiculous. Yeah, he treats it like back. a deagle. Yeah. <laughs> it's this this episode like listeners, this is just we're gonna get through this as we'll a group, get through this together. The four of us. <laughs> um, uh, and Zathras, I guess. So uh, Delenn and the Mimbari government are real peeved that Sheridan apparently just murdered this dude. And Delenn and Lanier start a parallel investigation to Garibaldi's to try to determine um, whether or not they need to try Sheridan for murder. Lanier tracks down the Mimbari witness named Ashan, who happens to be from the same clan as Lanier. Pay attention to this. It will come back later. Um... Ashan is a real jackass to Delenn and claims that the attacker surrendered before Sheridan killed him. Um, that there's a phrase in Minbari that sounds an awful lot like death first, but actually means I yield to your authority. So 
Especially with this new information in hand, um, Sheridan is informed that Earth is ready to hang him out to dry uh, to save face. They want him to go to trial. And uh, additionally, no matter how that trial goes, Sheridan's career is just toast. Uh, Delenn, meanwhile, has maybe started to think about this similarly to us and realize that it's fucking stupid and uh, is dubious about the testimony. Mimbari do not lie, but she doesn't really think that Sheridan equals equals cold-blooded murderer. Genocide, fine. Lying, whoa, too far. (laughs) So, so Delenn has tracked down some more information on the deceased, and on her orders, Lanier follows Ashan and finds him meeting with the thief who stole the captain's link. Lanier tries to convince him to act honorably and tell the truth, but Ashan flees. In a brief crossover with the B-plot, we get a reminder from Londo that while the Mimbari don't lie as a general rule, they do consider it honorable to help another save face. The Mimbari government order Ashan back to the homeworld, which would conveniently leave the situation ambiguous and completely destroy Sheridan's credibility. Lanier gives him the orders and they discuss the situation, and then we get the denouement of the episode. The deceased was also a member of their shared clan, and the clan leaders orchestrated the whole situation to get back at Sheridan for destroying the Black Star, which apparently didn't just involve mining an asteroid field, but also faking a distress signal. We'll talk about that later, folks. Hmm. It turns out that the whole conversation was a sting, and that Lanier was wearing a wire. Sheridan offers to turn over the evidence to Delenn as long as Ashan makes a true statement about what he saw, allowing the Mimbari and Lanier to preserve their honor. The motive behind the attack would would simply remain a mystery, um, as with so many mysteries aboard the station, but Sheridan's name would be cleared. Our B-plot for this episode is Ivanova-centric, but uh, don't get excited. Sheridan puts her in charge of overseeing a pilot program for a B-5 gift shop. She initially hates the idea of the shop, but is somewhat warmed over. There doesn't seem to be much harm to it, and it would bring some revenue to the station. Until Londo comes to her with a complaint. The gift shop is selling dolls of him, and presumably the other ambassadors, um, and his is not anatomically correct, symbolically casting him in a bad light. <laughs> Ivanova smooths over the situation and reports back to Sheridan, showing him one of the other gift shop offerings, a bear with the initials J.S., uh, Sheridan orders the shop shut down and spaces the bear for good measure. Moving on to the C plot. Yes, <laughs> there's a C plot. We have some decent content, finally. 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 The Centauri government have fired Veer. Londo is now more powerful uh, and deserves a better attache, which we all know is fake because Veer is the best. Forever. Accurate. We stand. Veer responds by getting day drunk and ends up having a heartfelt moment with Londo about the fact that he feels so out of control over his life. So even if Londo fixes the problem and makes it so that Veer stays, there's still Londo controlling the situation and he still feels smothered by Londo's secrets. Londo ultimately does sort out the situation with Centauri Prime and vows to turn over a new leaf and treat Veer better. Spoiler, 
He does not. <laughs> yeah, that's a crock of shit. Can I, can, okay, so <laughs> I do want to raise a point with the outline here. I reject this being called a D-plot because there are no penises involved. Uh, okay. Can we, we call this the E-plot? We have a fourth plot. We have a fourth plot there in this go. episode. Thank so you. despite Sheridan's, like... A no good, very bad day. Kosh doesn't let him get out of their regularly scheduled cultural exchange session. Um, Kosh brings Sheridan to Down Below, where a bunch of piles of laundry come alive and sing a Gregorian chant. Um, Sheridan is awed by the whole thing, calls it beauty in the dark. And Ivanova gently mocks him for sounding like the Vorlon. And that's the episode. Where do you... Okay. Uh... The one thing <laughs> that I liked about this episode was Londo being yeah. offended that his uh, gift shop doll didn't have enough dicks on it. <laughs> yes. the That was the only thing I liked about it. That and the laundry. I, I'll say that Veer has some really good moments. Yeah, and Veer. And Veer. I always like Veer. Like, Veer yeah. speaking honestly to Londo and saying, like, no matter what happens here, I'm fucked and, like, I hate you, but also this is, like, the best job that I've ever had, but also I hate you. Yeah, that was good. Generally, this episode is so... If he hadn't already written several episodes, I would say that it was clear that this writer just had... One, just one. Just one. Well, just this is one? the second one. This is the second second one? and last. Okay. Yeah, second one. The, the previous one was the one where Ivanova and Delenn have a, have a spa day. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's... It really feels like <laughs> this writer does not have a solid grasp of these What's characters. What's going on in the show. Yeah. I, and ironically, like, the one thing he does nail down is a thing I hate, which is the whole, like, Minbari honor horse shit, which is a trope. I'm so ready to fucking stick in, a, in an airlock in space, but it, it just won't it just won't fucking go away. And it's, like, cranked up to 11 here. This whole Minbari don't lie except to save face. It, it's just... Yeah, the entire plot hinges on it. Yeah, and it's bad and dumb, especially in this episode, because the whole plot hinges on it being... They're doing this in revenge for Sheridan, blowing up their one ship they lost while they were committing genocide. And, like, we're going to get into the whole war crime... Yeah aspect of this but i do want to call out the fact that they are butthurt about the one ship they lost while committing genocide yeah that's, a, that's and, the part that i can't get and over. they're hung yeah, up on they're honor losers and they're hung up on like the dishonor the dishonorable way in which he did it and it's I'm like, like, it's like it's like the the warrior cast just thinks that the only honorable thing that Earth could have done is just like lie there and fucking take it. Yeah, or they should have just like hurled themselves at the the warrior cast ships and died. I, it's just dumb. Like I love the Minbari. There's so many things about the Minbari that I like. So many like subtle ways that they made the Minbari familiar and different, and they 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 made them remind you of certain like. It's a dirty word, but, like, there's a long history of Orientalism in science fiction and fantasy. Like, that's a thing that comes up. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in many ways, the Minbari avoid Orientalism tropes in ways that I really like. But the dumb fucking honor thing yanks, yeah. just drags them down. It's a lead weight. 
around the whole thing. And it just drives me up a fucking wall. One of the things that really clinched this episode as being just so wildly out of character is early on, Sheridan is asked whether he like can describe the witness. And he says, I don't know, bald with a bone on his head, which is yeah. so far out of character that everything we've seen of Sheridan up to this point would lead you to believe that it'd be like somewhere between giving like an accurate description based off of the things that he would have noticed. Like he was wearing a black robe and he had a small nose and a prominent chin or, you know, like he had a distinctive piece of jewelry or whatever. Somewhere between that and like everything happened real fast and I didn't get a good look at him. But to just like rattle off instantly this like xenophobic comment of like, yeah, bald with a bone on his head, like all the fucking Mimbari. Yeah. Is so I feel like almost like ill watching that. Cause it's so far it's so far out of bounds for everything we've seen from Sheridan that like we you know, Sheridan the Mimbari might not respect Sheridan, but Sheridan respects the Mimbari and knows a lot about their culture, yeah. etc. And that's part of what has made him interesting up to this point. We talked about this last episode, is Everybody thinks he's the guy that would describe the Minbari as bald with a bone on their head. And he's not. Like, he won that fight. He he beat the Black Star because he's a big fucking nerd. Not because he is some warmonger. Like, Although idea- he is a war criminal, apparently. We're, we're going to get to that. We're, we're going to get to that. that. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just dumb. It, it's It's, as you said... It's a, a it's wildly out of character for Sheridan to be to 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 do that. And it sets the tone right off the bat for this whole episode because like 40, 50 plus percent of the the characterization in this episode is I mean, it's like somebody pumped something into the air on the station and everybody's acting like a dickhead. It's like Peter David wrote this episode thinking that Sheridan was the person that Earth Force thinks he is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Like it's like Earth Force fan fiction about John Sheridan. Yeah. Do do we want to talk about the gift shop? Yeah, so I think the gift shop is like honestly, it's sort of kind of charming. It's sort of kind of cute. Like we get a couple scenes of like Ivanova being subjected to customer service hell. For an episode that I hate, it has one of the best visual gags that I've ever seen in this show, which is that she goes into the gift shop to like kind of see what's up oh yeah. and a customer there's two customers that she sees one is a human wearing i believe a drazi mask and the other is a drazi wearing a human mask yeah and it's just flawless on both and it's amazing and she's just like what the fuck is going on here yeah. but she just sort of rolls with it it's it's like a 30 second bit but it's yeah. Some of the most solid it's it's a really solid visual gag. Yeah, and it's funny that you would put Ivanova in charge of this and not like some I don't know. Edson? Yeah, some Edson. Like I put it like Kefir. I I would put no, no, like, no, no, you, um, you know who you put on this? If this was a Star Trek episode, you know who would end up in charge of this? Barkley. Harry Kim. Yeah, well, if it was yeah, if it was uh Voyager, if it was TNG, it would, like Barkley would end up in charge of this or something like that. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, it, it, that's one of the things that's like I it, I've noticed this a couple times but it's like generally the 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 general age 
of the B5 cast is a lot older than other sci-fi shows, mm-hmm. I would say. Like, there isn't a dude who's, like, identifiably the young person. We're, we're, like, we'll get Marcus eventually. Maybe, maybe but... Zach Allen and that... that... Zach, Zach has, like, veteran energy still. Yeah. There's also there's also that, like, young guy on CNC. Yeah, but he's... Oh, yeah, Conway. Con- Conway, but even... Uh, Corwin. 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 Yeah, but even at this stage, he's uh, technician number two. He doesn't even he doesn't even have a name in in the scripts yet. Yeah, he gets a name next episode. Like that's like he, and nobody even says it. <laughs> it's just yeah. on screen as his name. But yeah, it's it's one of those things of like I think it would be funny it would like with like a twenty something actor to be like forced to the customer service role that would have been like a really good B plot. But instead, you have the EXO of the entire station. It's weird. It's so far, yeah. especially when like. Her characterization all throughout the show is that she has no time for this bullshit, and somehow she ends up with like the gift shop. Yeah, I, yeah. Like, I'm really curious how this episode ended without her shooting someone, <laughs> because yeah. frankly, it's like I like Ivanova joined the military early. She does not have the ability to. St- Nobody in the like senior staff of the station has worked retail before. They would shoot someone. It does raise an interesting possibility, though, uh, that humanity has somehow evolved beyond Karens. Because if Karens existed in this century, Ivanova would have shot one. (laughs) So the fact that she did not shoot one suggests the only possible out the only possible answer to that is that they must not exist possible possible but i mean there's even like the the standard it's not even like the complaining customer service people but it's like also the people like how do you function as a human being and why are you asking me these questions when yeah you can like i either you cannot read you cannot listen or it's yeah uh but yeah this is this is a this is a weird episode i like it never gets referenced again and like apart from like the laundry monks and like the Londo stuff, those will like those will get like those are threads that'll get picked up on. But um Yeah. It's this a is useless. an episode that feels weirdly out of canon. Yeah. Yeah. It it feels like it feels like fanfic. Um so the and the thing with the the thing with the gift shop subplot that bothers me is why wasn't there already a gift shop? Like Okay, I could see I could see it being like not maybe as extensive as was shown, but like it's an airport. B five has a huge amount of like tra- yeah. kind of people passing through. Like, it's- there's got to be a place to pick up like a t shirt uh, or like a keychain. You know, yeah, like B five is an airport. Like it is an airport. You know, if I walk twenty feet in any airport, I can see a like a place where I can get. Specifically, like, a Denver coffee mug. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. God, I want to go to the Denver airport again just so I can get Blucifer uh, memorabilia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to ask, Justin, did you catch uh, this episode's uh, JMS's dump on DS9 in this episode? Yeah, it's like, this isn't a deep space franchise. It stands for something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're the dude who got, you're the dude who got pissy about somebody giving you a bear. Yeah. 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 There's a line about this in, um, so fragile. In, in Lurker's Guide. Apparently, uh, after Peter David delivered the script, he then read JMS's polish on it. Peter David didn't write that line. JMS put it in. 
and J Peter David went back and read it. And he said, are you really going to use that? And he said, absolutely. It's fall down funny. <laughs> I, I mean, I understand why Peter, Peter David was worried about it. He, he wrote, he wrote Trek novels. Yeah. I love that. He like specifically commented on that somewhere on the internet too. He's, such a fucking snowflake about the DS9 thing. Speaking about snowflake stuff um, with JMS, I just had a realization today that both Jeffrey Sinclair and John Sheridan have the initials JS. Mm -hmm. Gosh, he is not such unlike a... JMS. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <sighs> Okay, uh, let's see here. I want I want to save the Justin gets on a pedantic high horse for the last thing. There was a there was a costume bit costuming bit that I liked. Okay. Um, that Ashan and Lanier have like similarly sculpted head ridge bones, um, which is kind of a visual clue that they might be kind of related or maybe in the same clan or something like yeah. that. That you know they they are styled to look somewhat similar yeah mm -hmm. uh also we have the the fun fact that so a, a character that i completely left out because she's fucking useless is sheridan gets a lawyer who apparently just like wants him to have his career trashed yeah i i forgot about her because she does nothing yeah, she shows up for she shows up for like a scene and does nothing. It, i really wonder if she got like if she was in an earlier draft of the script that got dropped mm -hmm. yeah and, she she's in like two scenes. She's in the Denou the Denouement scene as well. But she is played by um Julie Caitlin Brown, who plays the Toth in season one. So that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get a let's let's talk about <laughs> some war crimes. Yeah, okay. So I'm gonna lay out the case here. Like we're okay, so here's the thing. The Earthland Bori War was a war of extermination. We are going into that, we are all recognizing that. And we're pointing out that it doesn't matter for what we're talking about here. Yeah, we're, we are entering into a court of law. We this is this is our small section of the of the General Hague Memorial Court. Yeah. Well, and, and <laughs> more than which is a that's a that that is a double joke that I'm very proud of. <laughs> well, and more importantly, uh, you pointed this out when we were discussing this before recording. Like, yes, we're speaking specifically about like. Geneva Convention recognized war crimes, yeah, which, which don't matter. Context doesn't matter there so yeah. much, but also it's like it. What we're specifically talking about is like it does. The context doesn't matter. What matters is do we believe John Sheridan committed a war crime, and does that change your perception of him? And yeah. in that case, the context is not quite so important. All right. So, listeners, the facts, the case are this. In season two, episode one, we got the information that uh, Sheridan lured the Black Star and I believe two other cruisers into an asteroid field and used a nuclear weapon to blow up those ships. These, this is like basically the only victory of the Earthman Bari War. Because he mined, he mined the asteroid field specifically. Yeah, they, they say he mined the asteroid field with a, nucle with a nuclear bomb. Um, and in this episode, we learn from the Minbari that Earth had used a faked distress signal. JMS will like clarify in Lurker's Guide that he used a Earth Force uh, distress signal and not a Minbari one. But this leads into the whole thing that John Sheridan 
faked a distress signal to lure uh, ships into a area as a trap for a nuclear weapon. Yeah. Now we were we're getting we're getting to the point here, which is that the way that everybody reacts to distress signals and an SOS is pretty much universal. Like you do it because it could be you in that situation, and you'd want to and you'd want somebody to respond to your distress signal. Now, the Minbariana War of Genocide, it does not matter in this context. Yeah. The reason that, for example, you don't see people like smuggling weapons in Red Cross marked trucks is because you would not like for the enemy to shoot your trucks that are marked with the Red Cross. Yeah. It's basically a thing of everybody doesn't do this because we don't want to we don't want to stop respecting this baseline level of decency. John Sheridan in 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 the context of this episode used a distress signal to set a trap. And I think that is very uncharacteristic and I think that it's diminishing of the character. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's, it's a specific violation of the Geneva Convention called perfidy. We looked it up today when we were discussing this. Uh it's a form of deception in which one side promises to act in good faith, such as ra- such as by raising a flag of truce with the intention of breaking that promise once the unsuspecting enemy is exposed. Perfidy constitutes a breach of the laws of war, and so is a crime, as it degrades the protections and mutual restraints developed in the interest of all parties, combatants, and, ci- and civilians. And I think that that's which of course the which of course the Mimbari have not signed on to the Geneva Conventions. Right. No, they haven't. But the point that Justin is making that I agree with is it doesn't matter that they haven't signed on. And it doesn't matter that they are committing that crime as well, because ostensibly they're gonna go they veer off course not to rescue this Earth Force. But because it's easy pickings. Distress signal, but because it's easy pickings. But what what Sheridan does here is now any Minbari ship that hears an Earth Force distress signal will treat it like a potential threat. If they didn't already. If they didn't already. So ships that ordinarily might have passed by the signal or might might have been inclined to render aid, like religious cast ships that might have been inclined to render aid as opposed to military cast ships, now they won't because hmm. this is now a threat. And that's the... That's why it's a war crime to do that. And uh, I think that Justin's point is exactly accurate. It's definitely still a war crime. That's That much is clear to me. Um, I got turned around on this. I was on the other side, but we reading the <laughs> definitions make it very clear that this is definitely still a war crime. Uh, and B, I 100% agree that it is not at all in keeping with the John Sheridan that we know who is a, a, yeah. a man of, he's a, he's a weirdo nerd, but he, he has his own code of honor. I would mm-hmm. say that we, we know that he fights clever, but he doesn't fight dirty. Right. So like the, the, like the, 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 the parting line for this from where it turns into like how it's presented in season one of a, a, a very desperate plan that he got lucky that it worked to a really shitty move that, like, mm, that's not a good look for you, is if, say, say, for example, if we found out that, like, through supplementary material, that 
he had he had like placed transponders to make it look like an Earth fleet was massing there, and the the Minbari go into this asteroid field to do an attack on an Earth Force fleet. I mean, that's that's clever, and that I think like that builds on what we've already learned. Yeah, or put something there that would look just like. At least like an anomalous signal yeah. or something. And here's yeah, the, I mean, in this case, least. it's like it's it's given like you know you give the Minbari data something like like oh we 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 stole the transponders from a couple Hyperion cruisers and we put them in the asteroid field and that like that and so the Minbari went in and once the trap was sprung, boom yeah like it's this you know that 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 works like that I think is like oh that's clever. Maybe it's like something that we didn't need to know. It's not like it doesn't tell us anything more yeah. beyond just like, well, that's because oh, hey, it's, it's, this information is we're given this extra information, not because it expands Sheridan's character any or because we need to know more about that, but because it plays into the whole honor angle, which we yeah. hate. Yeah, it's something more for them for to offend their honor and for them to hold over Sheridan in the name of their honor. And yeah. When you add plot for the purposes of a shitty subplot like that, it's of course it's going to be bad. Yeah. It's it's interesting because you know, this is in an episode that was not written by JMS and it really does make it feel like just like an alternate universe episode or something. Mm-hmm. Because you know, I feel like potentially the the JMS speaks afterward of, you know, clarifying that of course it was a earth distress signal there to be a lure of a easy target as opposed to a Mimbari distress signal where they would have wanted to go and render aid. Yeah. Yeah. Is like him trying to clean up the mess, perhaps. Yeah, I mean it, it's the reason why I like I'm jumping on this is because I wanna like like this is like a weird thing, which is like it feels like Yeah. And, and, like, JMS, like, clears up with, like, oh, yeah, it was an Earth Force ship. And I'm like, that's not better, like, in the long run. Because it's like, like, if a random warrior cast shithead knows about this, post-war, how much of the Minbari know about this? Like, in in this, we'll say, in this universe, hypothetically suggested by this episode, (laughs) like, do Minbari ships just not answer Earth Force distress signals? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a weird thing, and I'm just like, why I'm willing. It's like, especially because nothing gets referenced in this episode again. I'm just like, I'm really willing to shift it like to the side here. It's just a, it's just other than the other than the bit with Veer, yeah. which we like. Yeah, it's just a weird fever dream. There's also, I mean, we haven't even gotten into the laundry monks. Yeah, that's the weird fever dream here. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. They're they're. They put on a good show, but what the I fuck? I love I love me some some gory enchanting. Yeah, but, but like but what the laundry fuck? monks? Yeah. All right. So next episode we have is episode fifteen, and now for a word, written by Jim Michael Straczynski and directed by Mario DeLeo. Our usual program is interrupted to bring you a special news bulletin. Uh, this episode takes the framing device of an embedded news team recording a segment for broadcast back home. ISN presents. 36 Hours from Babylon 5, presented by Cynthia Torkman. She introduces Babylon 5, which is apparently Earth's most controversial outpost apart from the Mars colony. She comments on the dissatisfaction of public opinion towards the station, then goes to the footage. 
Our first footage is of a Centaurian Darn vessel getting into a firefight outside of the dock as the new ship is attempting to board the station. Tarkman tries to get information from Sheridan as they board, and it reveals that the Narn are being apprehended by a fighter ring. Londo derides the Narn in a later interview for firing in neutral territory, and reminds the interviewer that the Centauri have been friends of Earth for over a century. He claims that the Narn attack on the transport was unprovoked. Jakar, in a walk-and-talk interview, refuses to give a statement without his government's approval. Tarkman interviews some people on the station about working conditions, and they are all positive about Babylon 5. Tarkman questions Babylon 5's uh, shaky command staff history, but Sheridan suggests that it's just part of military life. People get reassigned all the time. Uh, Dr. Franklin, in an interview, talks about the dangers of space and is a general creep about this, including a st very unprompted story about one of his friends dying by getting shot out of an airlock. Yeah, that was graphic. It's grim. Uh, in another segment back in studio, Torkman questions why a project so bogged down with difficulties like Babylon 5 is worth investing in. An interview with a random senator reveals more distrust in the project and the opinion that Babylon 5 is now more a figurehead and more important economically than diplomatically. Sheridan dismisses this, saying that they haven't recovered from the Earth Bari War and they're still punching out of their weight. And that anybody which, the, else... which the senator then refutes by saying that, of course, they won the war. Oh, that was Torkman. Like, oh, that was Torkman. Okay. Torkman arrives that they won the war, which Sheridan has a nice little bit on armchair quarterbacking and revisionist history. We'll get into that in the actual talk about the uh, Torkman lists Babylon 5's fraught history, and then Jakar makes a statement. The Narn have determined the Centauri are using Babylon 5 to smuggle weapons of mass destruction, and will stop this by any means necessary. Hazmat teams search the space for weapons, and Ivanova and CNC brushes off Torkman's questions. Torkman tries to get an interview with Kosh, and gets a single shot of the Vorlog before he uh, disappears behind a door. Torkman then interviews Delenn and is generally a dick to her about her human transformation, evoking the war and its victims, and Delenn is only saved by a timely phone call. The League of Non-Aligned Worlds and Council reveal that the Centauri were carrying weapons of mass destruction. Jakar demands that the seven Centauri ships around Babylon 5 be seized and impounded. As the Council develops into shouting, the Centauri and Narn ships get into a shooting war. Earth ships are eventually fired upon, and Sheridan gives the order to fire on the Narn ships, and the Centauri stand down as well. Torkman interviews Jakar and Lado. Jakar tells the history of the Centauri occupation and how he became involved in the Resistance, including the death of his father. Lando offers the unpleasant or incomplete truth that they uplifted the Narn, and the Narn have rewritten history. In CNC, a Centauri battlecruiser jumps in right on top of E5. Lando says that the Centauri will blockade Babylon 5 until their ships are returned. We then get a commercial for the Psycor, a very a special episode-y. After the break, the Council meets and very little progresses. Sheridan eventually tells the Centauri that they will not acquiesce to their demands. A transport leaves B5 and the Centauri ship lets it pass. A Narn ship, however, jumps in and attacks the Centauri ship. The two fire on each other and the Centauri ship is destroyed. The Narn ship tries to jump away, but a malfunction with their jump drive destroys the Narn ship. They return to the studio, where Torquid reflects on the possibilities of Babylon 5. The citizens of B5 suggest that Babylon 5 is worth it, though Jakar now dismisses whether it can achieve peace. Sheridan reminds the listening audience of ISN 
that Babylon 5 is not there to enforce peace, but to create it and create a better world. I apologize for this uh, episode summary, listeners. It's a very... The, the format of it makes it very hard to summarize, and it's a little disjointed. It jumps around a lot. Yeah, and sort of because the the episode itself is already the summary of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. This is a mini-genre of television that I don't think was really popular when... It's not popular. This... It's well, not well, popular, uh, and I refuse to acknowledge that it's popular. It's that, common. Uh, it, it's a, yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a common narrative trope, but I don't think it was particularly common when this episode premiered. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I feel like I've seen this godforsaken trope in every TV show I've ever seen where it is remotely feasible that a news crew could be inserted into it. I've seen it in... I feel like I've seen it in Star Trek. I don't think it's ever been on Star Trek. I bet you it has been. It's It was on West Wing. My least favorite episode of West Wing is one of these godforsaken things. It's the dumbest fucking trope. I hate it. It's distracting and disjointed. And uh, they always manage to concoct some gratingly annoying newscaster character that's going to have some cockamamie agenda that they're trying to push. I just find the entire trope incredibly forced and uh, staged. And I, I don't know. It just makes me crazy. I, I'm super not a fan. And this is an episode that has some incredibly intense Jakar moments. Like Jakar has some great quotes in this episode and I still won't rewatch it because I just, yeah. I just find the episode incredibly frustrating to watch. Yeah. I, so there are things that I think the episode is trying to accomplish. Like, I don't think this is an episode where they're doing it just for the heck of it. Like, there is a, an attempt at a commentary here that yeah. fails because I don't think it goes far enough. There's the attempt to show what people back home are actually learning about what's going out, out on out in space. I think that's what it's trying to do. Yeah. And we get some specific cherry-picked moments of that, really. Which, um, for example, in the opening in the opening segment in the studio, we get a very... We get a, we get a thing where they talk about Mars and about how, like, a generally peaceful majority are overwhelmed by a radical, violent minority of Martians... When in the show, we've really seen that Marsh gets fucked over a lot. Yeah. Um, it, we we get these attempts to show that, like, ISN is, like, feeding propaganda to people. But I don't think it goes hard enough. Instead, it just feels... Part of this is that we're watching this in 2021, where the, the like, cable news and, you know... The, the 25 years that have happened or 26 years that have happened since this episode aired have so radically changed how we watch the news that yeah. this just feels like a moderately centrist, maybe a little right leaning um, thing. I'm sure that if I watched this 26 years ago, I'd be like, wow, that's pretty Fox newsy. <laughs> but this now is just like, this feels moderate. 
Yeah, it feels like, like that, that, it feels like centrist, and I'm like, it's it's a little bit distorted, but like, you know, broadly, Torkman is reporting in a fairly reasonable fashion. You can tell from certain things that I'm giving this episode the benefit of the doubt, like with what it's trying to do with like how you frame Londo from versus how they frame Jakar in interviews. It's trying to like set certain stuff up down the road, like that Earth Force is trying to push a treaty with the Centauri. Spoilers for the next couple episodes. It's trying to do stuff. It's playing coy with it and not pushing hard enough. Yeah, they they should have just gone like they should have. I mean, they probably shouldn't have done the episode and should have tried to tell the story in a different way. I mean, they, they maybe could have gotten away with it much better if they'd really gone like balls to the wall with it. Yeah, I think this is something where it's like satire, where unless you make the unless you make it so obvious, it's just going it's going to feel weak or like it's going to be in this middle ground here. And And I think if. I, I don't know how you redo this. Maybe like you, you have like some like choppily entered interviews. Maybe you include one or two more weird propaganda commercials. Yeah, the uh, honestly, I would have loved to see in between, like in between all of the acts, a you know, mm. ten second commercial or something. Or yeah, like ten to thirty second. That would have been fun. Like. You know, and and have it be a mixture of like we've got the Psychor one that has the subliminal message frames. Technically yes. not subliminal. Uh, yeah, no, there. Uh, yeah, subliminal so, messaging is two frames. This is four. Yeah, so, four. Yeah, because they had to get around FCC guidelines, which is actually like that's that's a cool little bit of thing uh, that I didn't know is that like yeah. there's actually specific stuff for subliminal messaging and what you can't do. I would have loved to have just like. A commercial for whatever the equivalent of the Olive Garden is. <laughs> you I, know, that, that would have made the episode a lot more fun, is throwing yeah. in little details like that. That yeah. it comes across as dry. Yeah. I, I think it's like you could stand for like, I think you could lean into this more. You could, you could wink at the camera. Um, if you, I don't know, maybe get some other news stories in there. I think that would be interesting. Jameis was excited for this episode because he thought, like, it's ambitious for what it's trying to do. Um, but I just don't think, it, like, it's it, it's not in the concept, but in the execution. I think broadly he should have, like, relaxed and had more fun with it. Yeah. If there had been more fun put into it in the writing and the acting and... The directing maybe it'd be more fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a couple. There's a couple moments like you get an information like a Cairo. The reference that Babel, that Babylon's one through four all got fucked, and that <laughs> and they show yes. they show the odds from various odds makers for if Babylon five would list last six months, and that yeah. is possibly one of my favorite things of this episode is just like like others lights of London, New Vegas. <laughs> Yeah, those are those are some of my favorite bits, and I really do love the Psychor commercial. Like, yeah, the Psychor commercial is horrifying. Is... But every time I watch this episode, that commercial comes on, and I'm like, "Yes, this! I hate the Psychor." Yeah. So we get an update on the Narn Centauri War, which, like, we don't get as we like we sort of get from the context that this at the Narn are getting pushed around a little bit. Yeah. Not the walk and talk or the public statement he gives, but in like 
an interview after sort of the shooting war starts. Oh, fuck. Uh, that around scene. B5. Uh, That's so J- good. Yeah. Jakar goes into, it, it's a very good scene of his, where he talks about his father being killed for spilling hot jala on a Centauri lady of that house. And where his father was hung for three days how he got in the resistance and how he basically there, the quote he has at the end of the interview is talking about the imperialism of the Centauri. You've experienced much of the same on your own world. There are humans for whom the words never again carry special meaning as they do for us. I think that is a very risky line. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, it is given enough gravitas and enough consideration that it works when that line could have easily come off as very insensitive. Yeah. 100% agree. Kasulis pulls it off, though. Well, yeah, yeah it's down to Kasulis, but it's also down to the circumstances in which he's delivering the line. It's very clear the circumstances that the Narn have been through is they're not trivializing the line. He's saying that we have lived through a tragedy like that, and he, he's he's finding common ground with humans who have lived through through profound tragedy. And I think it works. Yeah. But again, I I do think it's Kotzelis imbuing that moment with so much sadness and so much gravitas that you believe that he has seen his father hang for three days. Yeah. And, and that is so, that description is so chilling, especially like that, you know, the Centauri didn't just kill his father. He wasn't just, you know, taken out and shot or whatever that they, or he wasn't even hanged. He was hung from a tree to die of exposure. Yeah. Man, there's which is, whew. yeah. That's not the last time we'll 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 touch that particular image either. Yeah, and it that's such a good Jakar scene. It makes you like Londo a lot less every time you are reminded of what it is he wants to go back to. Yeah, like I, you love Londo, and you think he's this sort of jolly uncle type until you're reminded that. He hates the Narn and the, the old empire he's trying to go back to is, I mean, he's basically your racist uncle who wants to go back to with, with, uh, you know, a, uh, Confederate flag flying out the back of his Centauri cruiser who wants to go back to the South, you know, there, there aren't as direct historical analogs that we that we see in Babylon five, but you can often really compare the Centauri to the British Empire. Londo is the person who firmly believes that, yes, we should enslave an entire world again. Yeah, it's just gross. Because that that's our duty, that, because that's our place as the Empire. Yeah. I actually personally feel like Londo is even more chilling than the racist uncle. Because I don't believe that he personally hates the Narn. I believe that he doesn't care. He we see we see other characters who have much more That's true. active hatred to the Narn. And Londo is given a contrast to them that he it's he's not wiping out the Narn because he hates the Narn. 
he's wiping up the Narn because he wants power and like who cares? Fuck him. Yeah. Like, which I feel like is so much so much worse in many ways. Yeah. He does it all with a smiling face. And Yeah. If you want to read into this episode, you could put some stuff together between a couple things. The Centauri and Earth Force are presently putting together a non-aggression pact. At least in this place, there are overtures being made to it. Londo tends to get framed with more grace and he gets a softer lens under the camera. Nobody ever, like... Londo presents the idea that the Nard invited them onto their world and the Centauri, like, graciously uplifted them. Um, yeah. Which is a whole load of colonialist drivel. Um, and it's never challenged by the reporter. It's very passive. I don't know. You could make, like, I, I, I have had a friend who, like, goes to bat a little bit more for this episode, suggest that it's, that it is a subtle form of speciesism that Earth is practicing, where they're going to identify with this, where they identify with the Centauri more and are even unconsciously going to give them a better light because they look like humans. I buy it. More. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's one of those things of like this episode overall just is it's, it's one of those things where I feel like that would have been better in the framing of the episode if they had been more blatant with it. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah probably. But say Levy. Yeah. Uh the the other scene that I really want to talk about is the Delenn interview. Uh, because I have a thought on this. Yeah, so so on the one hand, like I'll joke that, you know, I'll never be able to forgive Torkman for making Delenn cry. Um, because Delenn. But I think that the scene is really worth examining because I don't think that Torkman is wrong. We, we're we getting a lot of emotions from Delenn here that she's she's gone through this transformation and basically she's a pariah on both sides now, which was not the reaction that she was anticipating. Having that moment of emotion as Torkman points out that, you know, it's probably not just Mimbari who aren't pleased with her becoming more human, that probably humans, a lot of humans aren't necessarily comfortable with that either. And Delenn just, her heart breaks on screen. So yes to all of that, but I, there's another lens that I, that I was like, after Delenn starts, the, 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 the facade keeps cracking Torkman keeps going in on her. Mm-hmm. And then there's a point, like, it, it's it's pretty much right after that, where it starts reminding me of a different thing, which is, it feels sort of turfy. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I might be reading into this just because I know the metaphors there. And, and this isn't really a thing that's, that's going to be in the public consciousness yet. But, like, in 2021, the second half of that interview has a tinge of like you're appropriate you're appropriating this this isn't your face how do you think you know how do you think us humans feel about this um and it feels very turfy like or at least like the second time i watched it 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 had just that tinge there and it reminded me of conversations that i've seen like that Mm. yeah the kind of like what right do you have to pretend you're like us yeah thing 
it's it's uh I feel so Delenn has had a rough time of it lately. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a, this has been not a great year for her. It's about to get worse. We're about to hit confessions and lamentations, folks. Oof, I do. Uh, okay. I've got a couple more like little notes for this episode. Uh, we get a return of one of the dock workers from season one during the strike episode. Oh yeah, I which love I that think guy. is an excellent. That, that was a great callback. I liked that one. He gets a name too. Not that I remember it. Yeah, uh, we get Cor- Corwin gets a name now. Yes, yes. He gets it in like one of the info chirons. Okay, I do have to put this. Uh, so when I was writing this episode outline. Multiple times when I wrote Torquemada, I wrote Torquemada. <laughs> I noticed that. Uh, because, so, when I did that, I, I joke, like, and so I did that. And then when I was looking on Lurker's Guide for any tidbits there, apparently that was intentional. That, uh, that JMS used Torque, like, had Torquemada on the brain because he had Inquisitors on the mind. Oh. Which we will get to in a few episodes. Yeah. Yep. I have one last thing that I want to talk about here, which is yes. timelines. So yeah. we get two different pieces of time information in this episode that I don't believe we've gotten previously, or it's been less explicit at least. Mm-hmm. So Jakar says something along the lines of that Centauri Narn contact was around 135 years ago. Narn has been free for what, roughly roughly 30? Something like that, yeah. Earth Centauri contact was about 100 years ago. So Earth made friends with the Centauri precisely at the same time that the Narn were in the height of being subjugated by the Centauri. Yep. I think that that says a lot of things. I think it's interesting that, I mean, Earth would have been somewhat more advanced than... When Narn. we when when the Narn the Narner presented like or at least Jakar we um like and we don't ever get the we don't really get the implication from the story's narrative that Jakar is ever presenting itself deceitfully but they're presented as an agrarian society right right so so Earth, Earth would meanwhile be... has learned how to nuke themselves to hell and back yeah yeah so <laughs> Earth would present more of a danger so you know but. I mean, Earth at that point doesn't have jump gate technology, and I think that they got a lot of tech from the Centauri yeah. in general. But it, you're right, though. I think it's... it's fair to say that in a at the point of contact, if Centauri had wanted to call, you know, take over Earth, they could have. Yeah, they probably could have, but it would have been a. But it's 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 that thing where it's like. The Narn, from what it sounds like, had like basically a rapid technological extension because they basically stole a bunch of Centauri shit and made their own stuff. Yeah, right. In a very short period of time, so like the start point for subjugating the Narn was probably a lot easier than it would be for Earth. Who, right. Um, I mean, really, like the Earth of Babylon Five is basically a bunch of Yahoos with nukes. Yeah. <laughs> I still, I still find it interesting that the Centauri, that doesn't seem to have crossed their mind. So, yeah. They try something kind of backhanded by, like, trying to convince Earth that Earth is, like, a long-lost colony until Earth doctors actually, like, look at the anatomy and physiology and are like, no, no, 
not enough penises too or too many penises so i think the answer to that yes uh too many penises i think the answer to that it is goes back to imperialism earth wasn't earth was too sophisticated there you, you don't colonize people that look like you and can build tools and like you know have a yeah. have a civilization the narn were and i air quote this don't at me people savages you know what i mean like yeah they were they were ripe for colonization so they got colonized whereas yeah. earth was all all the, all the the centauri really could have done with earth was glass the planet and move on that was all and yeah fair. in fairness probably should have but <laughs> like they probably took one look at san diego and said yeah we'd just be wasting shots yeah They'll do it on their own. So, okay. So the the other the other part of this that I'd like to talk about is that, and I think it ties in with exactly what you were saying, Justin, with the framing of this episode and like the the different interviews between Londo and um, Jakar, etc. The Centauri subjugating the Narn isn't new to humans. No. They made friends, the Earth Earth made friends with the Centauri back during the height of that. I mean, it is interesting, like, within the narrative of the show that the the Narn have been more recent friends to humanity. Yeah. Considering that the Earth, like, a lot of Earth's technological ascension in the last 20 years has been due to the Narn selling them a bunch of guns. <laughs> Yeah. It I mean I, I I do wonder though like when you're fresh onto the interstellar stage are you in a position to be really like judgy about other civilizations? Yeah. Not like that you shouldn't mm -hmm. you know have a moral compass. Yeah. But also like, like maybe it's maybe you don't. Maybe you you just sort of stay out of people's way until you're in a position where you you don't get w wiped your entire civilization yeah. wiped off the, the star charts. Like, I'm not saying that Earth mm -hmm. should, like, I'm not saying that Earth was in a position to do anything about it, but I'm I'm more making the point that being at least comfortable brushing Centauri imperialism under the rug is nothing new for Earth. Yeah. 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 I get you. That's all I wanted to point out for this one. Those timelines oh. are wild, though. Alright, uh, next time we're going to be talking about episodes 16 and 17, In the Shadow of Zaha Doom, and Knives. Until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.